Good morning, church. Um, we are going to take a minute here and do something a little different. Uh, pull a little audible on the order of worship this morning. Um, if you haven't heard, uh, Jimmy Sportsman's wife, Gail, passed away last night. And um, I know that uh, Jimmy and Gail served this church for a long time. Uh, if you're new here, like I am, um, you need to know that Jimmy was the uh, preacher here for uh, several years. And his wife, Gail, was an important part of this church. And uh, there's a lot of heartbroken people here today. And so uh, we're going to take a moment and we're going to address that. And the way that we do that is we take it to the Lord. That's what we do. Uh, and we realize that it's not just Gail, but uh, this church has suffered a few losses. Uh, in particular, uh, strong godly women. Uh, we know that Caroline Kinsing, uh, Gwen Fikes. Um, there's been others. There's been a lot of loss. And what we do with that is we take it to the one place we know to go, and that's to our God. Uh, scripture says that we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we mourn with those who mourn. And as followers of Christ, the fact is we get to do both at the same time. Uh, the message this morning from Jimmy uh, was entitled Victory, uh, because uh, Gail has reached her victory in Christ. And we get to remember that for those of us that belong to Christ, sorrow and hope are not two opposite ends of the spectrum. They run right next to each other. We get to have both at the same time. And so what we get to do is we get to rejoice in the reward that she has, and at the same time, we get to feel sorrow in who we're going to miss. But we do that together as a church. So we're going to take a few minutes now. Uh, I'm going to invite James Penlin up here uh, to word a prayer. And uh, the elders and ministers and their spouses are going to be around. Um, if you are, uh, man, if you're heartbroken over loss, if, uh, if you're rejoicing over victory in Christ, uh, this gives you opportunity to go back and let them pray over you. And if I can, let me mention one other thing. Uh, you have elders here and shepherds that really love you, but I want to remind you too, they're also sheep. And, um, and they're hurting right now. They were very close to Jimmy and to Gail, and their hearts are broken. And so while you may want to go back and let them pray over you, and that's great, they would be honored to do that, uh, this is a time where you can pray over them too. This is a time where uh, they will need your strength, uh, they will need your prayers, and uh, so we're going to take just a little time after James's prayer, uh, sing a couple of songs, and if you feel the opportunity, you can pray with those around you, you can pray silently, you can go back and pray with them, but uh, we're going to take this, like I said, to the, to the God that we know who heals all wounds, and the one uh, where our hope lies. James. Psalm 16. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. I'd like to ask for you to be with me in prayer. And if I stop along the way, would you please continue praying? Dear 
God, our merciful Father, we come to you this morning with deep sadness at the passing of our sister, our friend, our neighbor, Gail. We're so thankful for her, for her faith, for the example of that faith she was to us, even to the very end. And we're thankful, Father, that in the last days and weeks, when she was so miserable, so hurting, so sick, her faith did not weaken, but actually became stronger. And her desire to see you and your son only grew as time passed. We're thankful, Father, that your Holy Spirit never left her and that he was there until the very end. We rejoice with her this morning and although we're deeply saddened, we have joy in our heart for the victory that she is enjoying this very moment. We rejoice with her and say hallelujah. But she left behind those of us who love her, most especially Jimmy, her husband of 40 years, who loved her deeply. And we're thankful for Gail, for she made Jimmy a better man. And she left behind two beautiful daughters, her sons-in-laws, and her grandbabies that she loved dearly. And we pray for them, Father. We have all lost mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, spouses, good friends. And we know the pain that they are suffering at this time, the grief that they have, even though they are celebrating with their wife, mom, mother-in-law, grandmother, But we also know, Father, that the loss of a loved one leaves a big hole in our heart. And even though we find ourselves in a crowd of folks, we can experience a deep loneliness. And we pray, Father, right now that you would give them the strength necessary to get through the next few days, months. That you would give them the good memories of their mom, their loved one, to sustain them during this period of grief.
We know, Father, that there will always be that small, small hole in their heart. We pray, Father, that they would do what Gail would want them and us to do is to move forward, to accept the healing by way of your Holy Spirit in our lives, and that we might go forth and demonstrate our faith and our longing for a home in heaven, just as she did. We're thankful, so thankful, Father, for her example. We're deeply sorry that she had to endure this, that we might see her faith and and what it means to us. There's many in this congregation, Father, that has lost loved ones in the last few weeks, months, years, and we pray this same prayer for them as well. And we pray, Father, as a body that we might show your love to each one of these folks. Help us, Father, to demonstrate to this world that we are longing to return to you and that we have no fear in death, but we welcome it as a journey back home to where our real citizenship lies. We pray for everyone present. We thank you, God, for sacrificing your one and only son that we might address you, in essence, face to face. And we thank you, Father, even as we pray that his blood continually cleanses us that we might be pure in your sight. Please be with us over the next days. Please be with Gail's family in a special way over the next few days. We pray all of this because Jesus died for us, and it is his name we say amen. Good morning, church. Uh, It is good to be with you this morning. Hard times and in good times, uh, thankful that the Lord uh, put us all together, knew we would need each other, and so it is a blessing to be with you this morning. Uh, One of the things that I have uh, been spending my time doing in my first few weeks here is I'm learning about uh, traditions that we have here, uh, things that you guys have done in the past. I'm learning some language. I'm learning some new things. One of the things I learned was something called a grace bomb. I wasn't familiar with that. That's brand new to me. And if you're new, I'll tell you a little bit about what that is. Um, over the last few years, I think this was started by Jimmy, uh, there was a, uh, an idea to take uh, September 11th, a day that is often remembered because of uh, the horrible things Uh, that happened on that day and the the lives that were lost, and to try and uh, turn it a little bit here. Let's make that a day where what we do is, as people of God, uh, we serve this city, and we do something that is uh, filled with grace and is filled with goodness, and we try and get people to have a good day because of the way that people have served them. And so I I love this idea. I think it's a great idea for us to do. And what has happened in the past few years is we picked maybe a restaurant, 
and we all show up, and we give them a lot of business, and we take up um, a little offering ahead of time, and we make sure that the servers have a nice day, and uh, they get a nice tip out of the whole thing, and so it helps out a business here locally in this town. That's what we want to be. We want to be salt and light in this town. So we're going to do that again. In a few weeks, on September 11th, that's a Sunday, we are going to, uh, we've picked out a restaurant. It's a secret for now. Uh, but we're all going to go there on uh, September 11th, those that can. And we'll go early for an early dinner, about 5 o'clock, and we'll go in there, and we will bless that place, and we will thank them for being a part of our community, and we will make it a, a great day for the servers and the cooks and the, uh, the bus boys and, and bus ladies that work there, and we will make sure that they have a wonderful day. So what we would like to do is, if you would, there's a table outside. You can sign up if you can come go with us. Uh, to be a blessing to this uh, business here in Kerrville. And there's an opportunity for you to make a donation uh, that we will end up giving to the servers to bless them too. Even if you can't come, you can make a donation there. Uh, if you can't make the donation, you can still come. Whatever you need to do, we would love to have you be a part of that. So uh, I think it's an exciting thing for us to be able to do to serve this town. Uh, before we begin, if we can, let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the way that you... Heal our hearts. We thank you for your presence being in this place, not because this place is special, but instead because uh, we rely on you. You're our God, and we all bend a knee uh, to the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And because of that, we have hope, and because of that, we get to be your people. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless our efforts to be a blessing to this community, uh, that, um, that our opportunity to serve this place would be seen as a... Um, a light and, and salt in this community, that it would be something that people uh, see our faith and they would want to glorify our Father who's in heaven because of what we do. So, Lord, let us be generous in, uh, in our giving. Let us be generous with our time. Let us be generous in the way that uh, we spread kindness and mercy and love throughout this city. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time this morning as uh, we dive into your word. We thank you for your word and uh, that it's a, a living a word that changes us, and may we be changed by the words that you have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, we have been talking a lot in John 15 about uh, the vine and the branches. I'm going to show it to you again. That right there. You see that little circle right there? That is the connection of the branch and the vine. That's what we're focused on. That's what changes us. That is what Jesus is trying to give us as an, as an example before he heads to the cross. And there's this word that comes up, and he uses it over and over and over again. And if you're familiar with the way a rabbi works, which is what Jesus was in the first century, when he keeps using the same word over and over again, he is really trying to make a point. He wants you to get something. And so he keeps using this word abide. If you will abide in me, I abide in my Father. I abide in him, you abide in me. If you will abide in me, this is what we want you to abide in me. Abide, 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 abide. And he keeps saying it over and over again. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take just a little bit closer look at that and make sure that we understand what that is and what that is not. That word abide is a really interesting word because it means so many different things. It's, it also means to stay. If you'll stay in me, if you will continue in me, if you will remain in me, if you will endure in me, if you will wait in me. It all has to do with these words that lend themselves towards a resting place. If you will rest, 
in me and who I am. You know, that word abide, even its root is abode, right? That's your home. That's where you live. In other words, what Jesus is saying is if you will make your home and your resting place in me, then you and I will have a connection and I'll be able to make all kinds of fruit through you. But it has to do with this completion. It has as part of, of what it's saying is this finished work. In other words, what God has done is he's finished some things. He's completed some things that allow you to come and rest in that. It's really a call to trust him and who he says he is and who he says you are to him. That these things have been completed and you can come and you can rest, you can make your abode, and you can abide and stay and remain in him. If abide is what he's asking for, and if it lends itself to a place of rest, let me tell you what it's not, what the opposite is, and that's to strive. The word strive uh, would, would change this scripture entirely. If he were to say, if you will strive to be with me, if you will work, if you will toil, if you will spin. You familiar with that scripture that it talks about when Jesus says, if you look at the lilies, they don't, they don't spin, they don't toil. And yet look what I've done. I've dressed them in great glory. And I think that's important for us to remember too, is that striving is not something he's calling us to do in our relationship with him. It's more of a rest than it is a strive. The problem is, and especially in America, we are so production-minded that what we want to do is we want to look and go, what have I produced? What have I done? What have I accomplished? And what that does is it tends to lend us and our mind to the things that have been left undone, the things that I have not accomplished, the things I haven't quite reached, Years ago, I went uh, with our youth group when my kids were in youth group, and they went on a wilderness trek. I don't know if any of y'all have been on something that's like wilderness trek. Yeah, yeah, that was, whoo, boy, that was life-changing. Being stuck in a tent with five uh, young men who haven't bathed over a, a whole week. Wow. Um, but one of the things that I remember was that we were going to summit a mountain. And they asked who would be willing to uh, wear the pack that day for everybody's lunch and their water and all that. And I said, oh, I'd be willing to do that. It's no problem. So they put the pack on me, and I'm with my daughter, and I'm with all these high school kids. And we start up this mountain. And I remember it started to where it wasn't too steep, and then it got really steep. And I remember huffing and puffing so hard that my ribs were actually getting sore from how hard I was having to breathe. And I realized just how out of shape I was for a man that was in his 40s at that time. And that I'm going up this mountain, and I remember I can see the summit. I can see it right there. And just going, just one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. Don't quit. Don't let these high school kids see you quit. Whatever you do, don't stop. So I'm going, and I'm looking, and I'm like, I can do this. Just one foot, just one foot, just one foot. And we got up there, and we finally reached what I was able to see for the last 30 minutes. And got up there to the top, and I remember almost collapsing when our guide says, yeah, there's the summit up there. And I was like, no, 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 you've got to be kidding me. And I remember I looked at some of the high school kids, my own daughter, she started crying. She's like, you got to be kidding me. This isn't it? And we're like, no, this isn't it. And the guide said, no, there's further to go. You haven't reached it yet, and you've been trying, and you've been trying, and that's what striving feels like. That's what it feels like in our relationship with Christ. If what we look at is to go, I have to reach this certain level so that I have my relationship with Christ. 
It's the striving for things that are undone. I had a, a, a lady who's a friend text me this week about the series that we've been talking about. And she mentioned, she said, you know, I'm starting to change the way I'm looking at this because for my whole life, and this is somebody who was raised in the church, she said, for my whole life, I looked at that fruit, and it's talking about fruit in your life, and she said, I always compared that to how many people I've converted, and it was never enough. I always looked at that and went, it's not very many. That's not enough. And, and the idea and the mindset of striving will leave you in that spot where it will never be enough. I don't know what number my friend would have had to reach before she would have said, that's good or that's enough, because what she's doing is she's relying on her own striving, on the things that haven't been done yet. And that's what the mindset for striving has to do with the way that we interact with Christ. It even determines how we look at verse 10 in this. If you look at verse 10 in the scripture, it talks about it. It says, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love just as I've kept my Father's command and remain in his love. A mindset of striving means if you will keep my commands, then I won't take my love away from you. And that's not what Jesus says at all. What Jesus says is if you will obey my commands, then what you will do is you will find yourself in this place where you're relying on me where you are constantly abiding in what I've done, in what I say you are, in who I say you are, and in who I am. But what we can do is we can turn that and get to the spot where we say, you have to obey his commands or he doesn't love you, or God removes his love. Jesus takes his love away from you. And that's never spoken in any way there. As a matter of fact, that's not even part of the equation. That idea of striving so often has to do with work that is left undone and what you have left to accomplish, where abiding has to do with what God's already done, what he's completed, and what he's finished, and that we have the ability to rest in that and to rely on that and to trust that, to let that be our source, to let that be everything that defines who we are. And the fact is, we were created to abide. That's the way it was supposed to be. If you remember the story of creation at the beginning in Genesis, one of the things that it talks about is that God made these things, and every day he would say, and it's good. And then day two he created, and then he goes, that's good. And after six days, and after he made humans, and after he said everything in motion, he said it's good. And not only did he say it's good, he kind of said it like it's finished because he took time to rest. There was that day of rest. And once you know that's not a day of rest because God needs rest, that was a day of rest that really means it's complete, it's finished. If I were to have done, if God were to have done any more, it would have messed it up. It was exactly the way that it was supposed to be. And one of the things that we see later is even after there was the first sin, Adam and Eve could hear the Lord walking in the garden. That makes it sound like that was something that regularly happened. That there was communion, perfect communion, between man and God in the garden. It was complete. It was finished. And then it got messed up. And in Genesis 3, 4, and 5, we see that the deceiver came, the serpent. And one of the things that he did is he went to pick and to pull at that idea that things are complete and they were perfect. If you recall, he went to, to Eve and said, did, did God really say that you can't eat from anything in the garden? And she clarified that and said, no, no. 
We can eat from anything in the garden except for this one tree. If we do, he told us we die. And this is what the deceiver said. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Think about that lie for a minute. At its heart, what it is, is the deceiver saying to Eve, you're not complete. You're not finished. You're not good. God shouldn't have rested. You are not what you're supposed to be yet. You're supposed to be more. You're supposed to be like God. You are supposed to be God-like. You're not there yet, but you can be. So the first thing he did was pick on her idea that she can rest in what God has done that she could rely on it, that it could be something that defined who she is in every way. The argument from Satan is you can't just rest in what God has done for you and what he's created you to be, that you're enough and that you're good and that your relationship is right. The biggest part of the garden story is that God asked humanity that was there to abide in him, and instead we bought into a lie that says we can't because what God's done is not enough. And so we decided to strive for more than that, which led to our downfall. It's the same thing with the Sabbath, right? So after God took his time on the, after the sixth day and said, everything is good, everything's the way it's supposed to be, we're going to rest, rest in what I tell you. And then later, when he pulled his Israelites, the Hebrews, out of Egypt, this is when he introduced the idea of the Sabbath for them. And one of the things that he said was, I'm going to take you out of this place of bondage, this place of slavery, and now what I want you to do is I want you to come here. And he kept saying this to them, I'm going to show you that I'm your God and that you're my children. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you this. And with this, in this, you can rest. You can know. You can know that it's complete in what I have done for you and who I am. And then in Exodus 31, 12, and 13, this is the way he says it to Moses as they're starting to leap to head to the promised land. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I'm the Lord who makes you holy. What is this rest for? It's for you to stop and to realize I'm the one that makes you holy, that I'm the one that delivered you, that I'm the one that's Lord. You need to stop. Stop. Think on that. Rest in that. Let that be your source. Let that be the thing that makes you who you are. Be still for a moment and know what I have done. And then you can abide in that. Of course, then Jesus comes later and he doubles down on the whole idea of rest and what you know about it. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, this is what Jesus says, and you know this scripture. It's one of the most famous ones. Come to me, all you who are weary, and those of you who are burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's a pretty famous scripture, but I don't know if we know the depths, really, of what that meant when he said that. I don't know if any of y'all heard of Ray Vanderlyn. Anybody a Ray Vanderlyn fan? Ray Vanderlyn is a guy who was a, a, a follower of Christ, a Christian, who, and he went to Israel and he studied under the rabbis that were there to try and understand the Jewish perspective on all of these scriptures. 
And it's fascinating because he'll give you a different perspective on what was said and the reaction that would have been in that time. For instance, Ray Vanderlyn said that we don't really get the idea of what a big phrase that was for him to say, I will give you rest. He says that one of two things probably happened when Jesus said that in front of a bunch of Jewish people. He said, one is they picked up rocks ready to stone him. Or two was that you could have heard a pin drop because everybody was so quiet. And you want to know why? It's because nobody had ever promised the people of God that they would give them rest except for God himself. Back in Exodus, before he did leave, before they did leave on their, their journey to the promised land, the Lord says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's in Exodus 33. That's the only other time that had been spoken. That God says, I'll give you rest. So centuries later, when you have Jesus, and he's there in front of the people, and these are followers of God, these are Jewish people, religious people, and he's saying, if you come to me, this is what he's saying, if you will abide in me, if you will come and take my yoke upon you, if you will learn from me, if you will let me be the one who is the source for everything, I'll give you rest. And it was a shocking statement, absolutely shocking to them, because they're going, only God can give rest to people. Only God can give rest to their souls. Only God can give you that peace that we all desire. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I know. That's me. I can do that. That's him doubling down on, I'm the one true vine. I am the one that will be your source. I am the one that will be your identity. I am the one that is the only one that can give you rest and peace I'm the only one that will be able to finish things, where things will be complete, where you can rest in what I've done, where you won't have to spend the rest of your life striving, wondering whether or not you've accomplished enough. You won't spend the rest of your life toiling and spinning. Instead, it will be finished through what I do. Now, here's the interesting thing. Resting is not the same as doing nothing. So I don't want you to hear that from me. And this is one of the things that I struggled with when I went through these scriptures and I learned from this is to go, the idea of just resting, just abiding, seems like doing nothing. It felt like spiritually going into an empty room and just sitting there in the silence and doing nothing at all. And that was hard for me because that didn't feel like what I was supposed to be doing for a God who had a mission for us. So resting is not the same as doing nothing. Because here's the deal. Our vine, our true vine, our Savior, our Lord, our King, He's on the move. He moves. He is breaking through this world with a new kingdom. He is making things happen. He is wanting to change the world that's around us. And He's wanting to change us. And so abide in Him and abiding in Him is to move. It's to let Him change me. It's to let Him grow me. It has movement in it. It's him making me into what he wants me to be. It's following his way. So abiding and doing nothing is not the same thing. Resting in Jesus takes effort. You need to know that. It's hard sometimes. It's a simple process. It's a simple idea, but it's hard to do. 
You wonder what pulls us away. You can see it right there at the end of Jesus' life. It is so interesting to think that in John 15, the story that John tells about this is in between the upper room and the garden is when Jesus makes this claim, when he tells him. He's on the way to the garden. Last Supper's been had. He's going to the garden where he's about to be arrested. And one of the things that he says is, I want you to abide in me. But you need to know in the story of Matthew and the way that he tells it, within 37 verses, you can see it all fall apart. Every bit. Let me show you what happens in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, verse 33, Peter tells God, tells Jesus, I will never fall away. Even if everybody else does, I will never leave. This is Peter making a promise. I'll always abide. I'll always be there with you, no matter what happens. Let me show you what happens right after that. By Matthew 26, 40, just seven verses later, Jesus has asked them to stay with me. As a matter of fact, he even uses the word abide. Abide and pray with me when they're in the garden. And then he comes back, and in 40, he says, you couldn't even watch with me one hour. You couldn't even pray with me for one hour? In Matthew 26, 51, the soldiers come. Peter resorts to violence. He grabs a sword. He cuts off the ear of one of the servants. Jesus has to tell him, put the sword away, because if you live by that, you're going to die by that. In verse 56, after Jesus is arrested, just a few verses later, it says, all the disciples forsook him and then fled. And then in verse 26, 70, you see the story of Peter denying Jesus in front of everyone. In 37 verses, just 37 verses, it went from I'll never leave you no matter what everybody else does, I'll always abide in you, to everyone running, and then Peter denying him with a curse in front of other people to say, I'm not with that guy. It's hard. It's hard to always abide. You can see all the things that happen there. If you look... That with Matthew 26, 40. What happened right before then is Jesus comes to his disciples and he said, listen, I am sorrowful even to the point of death. Will you please just pray with me while I go off and pray? It makes you realize one of the first things that happens that can keep us from abiding in Christ is just we're weak. We're just weak. We have fleshly ways. They were tired and they fell asleep. I get that. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we are just weak. We like our comfort, and when things are outside of our comfort zone, we tend to turn loose of the true vine, and we tend to grab onto things that are comfortable for us. But here's the thing. Jesus was on his mission. He was on the way to the cross, and he's asking them, I need you to do some things differently. I need you to come over here. I need you to pray for me because I am marching towards the cross, and that's hard for us. It's hard for us to follow Jesus always when it makes us uncomfortable. Because we live in a world that says you should never have to be uncomfortable. No matter what, you should always be comfortable. You shouldn't do anything that makes you step outside of your comfort zone. Meanwhile, we have a Savior who says, you want to follow me? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and come on. And it's hard because sometimes we're just weak. Denying yourself is something that our world says you should never have to do. Following Jesus says that you do, and it's hard. In the next one, in Matthew 26, 51, Peter attacks with the sword. You want to know why? It's because oftentimes when we're met with violence and aggression, we respond in the same. 
and we feel like we have a right to. That's when we turn loose. That's when we don't abide. We see somebody coming at us, and they're coming at us strong, and they're being aggressive in the way that they're doing this, and they violated my rights, and they disrespected me, and I have every right to come back at them in the same way. And when you do that, you turn loose of the vine. You've grabbed onto something else. You grabbed onto your own pride. You grabbed onto your own fleshly desires. Anger makes us do that all the time. Someone hurts me, someone hurts my kids. I have every right to go after them. There's no way that I can stand for that. Someone wants to take my stuff. Someone wants to do something ugly to me. I get to do it right back to them. Uh, anger makes us turn loose of the one true vine so often. And finally, there's fear. Matthew 26, 56, where it says all the disciples forsook him and fled. And then you have Peter denying Jesus in front of a crowd. That's just fear. We have that. That'll take us away from Jesus too. The things that we're most afraid of is Jesus not being what we want him to be. Our heavenly father not fulfilling the expectations we have for him. What can happen is we start looking at God and we expect him to respond this way. When I'm hurting, God should respond. He should take the pain away. He should make this better and he doesn't always do it. He doesn't always do the things that we want him to do. And with that, we get fearful. We can become afraid. That's what happened with Peter. And that's what happened with Judas. If you think about it, he had two guys that had followed him for a long time. And frankly, Jesus disappointed both of them. They had in their minds the way that he was going to go about his work. They had in their minds the way he was going to fulfill his mission, and he didn't do it. Now, the interesting thing with this is we can also get fearful of whether or not we've messed up too big to come back. That's what happened with Judas. Where with Peter, he has this real awkward conversation on the beach after Jesus' resurrection, where he comes back and Jesus asks him, do you love me? And he reinstates him as a disciple. One of the things that's most beautiful that I love about Peter, and I know I just put all of that up there, and I was giving such a hard time to Peter. We often do. But one of the things that's amazing about Peter is even in his failure, he took his failure and he used it to abide in Christ. Where do I take my failure? Where do I take the times where I do mess up? Where do I take my frustration? Where do I take my sorrow? And the thing about Peter is he took it right back to Jesus. And he got reinstated as a disciple. That's one of the things that I think we have to remember. Oftentimes we get afraid, we get fearful that the mistakes that I've done have been so big and so much that I can't come back. I can't get back. I can't be reinstated. I can't have Christ actually love me the way that he did before. I get fearful that I've messed up too bad, that I can't get redeemed, that I've messed up so bad, there's no way for me to come back. I think one of the most powerful things for us is to remember to abide in Christ when we have failed, the times that we have messed up, when we have sinned, and to take that to Jesus and to let him reinstate us and to be the people that he's called us to be. So where does that leave us? That leaves us in a spot where what we do is we remain right in what Jesus says, that he's the alpha and the omega, he's the finisher of all things, he's the one that has made us complete, and then let the Holy Spirit do his work in us. And what that does is that saves us from a life of striving. We don't have to do that. 
when you look at that, and I think I told you guys this on one of the first weeks, I had a friend that became a new follower of Jesus, and she said, I looked at the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and what I decided to do was as I mastered each one, I would check them off the list. I put it on the refrigerator. All I had to do was master each one. She said, years later, I didn't get past the first one, love. You want to know why? It's because she's striving to make that happen in her life. Instead of relying on what God's already done and the work that Jesus is doing in her and let the Holy Spirit work through her to make that happen. So here's what happens. Instead of striving and spinning and toiling to make yourself more loving, what we need to do is we need to abide in the love that Jesus has for us. The fact that while we were still sinners, he went to the cross for us. To have that sort of unconditional love that says there's really nothing you can do that will make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do that will make him less, and we rest in that, and we believe that, and we make that our source, and through that, we're changed through the Holy Spirit, and we become more loving people to those around us. How can you not see other folks made in the image of God, worth so much that he was willing to come and die for them when you really rest in the fact that that's what he did for you? We don't strive to be more joyful. You can't do that. Instead, what we do is we rest and we abide in the fact that we were the joy that was set before him that made him endure the cross. That's what he said about you. The joy set before him that he was willing to endure the cross. And through that, we become more joyful. We don't try to get more peace in our life. Instead, we abide in the Prince of Peace. We let him change us and we become instruments of peace through the work of the Holy Spirit that that does in us. We don't try to be more patient. We don't strive for that. Instead, what we do is we rest in the fact that our God has been so patient with us. No matter how many times we've made mistakes, his love never fails, and that he doesn't want any to perish, but instead he's been patient with us. Kindness, we abide and we rest in the fact that he has everlasting kindness and compassion and his good deeds towards us. Goodness, we realize that our Lord is good and how good he's been to us and his mercy endures forever, forever. And through that, what that does is that changes us and we become people of goodness in the world around us. Faithfulness, we remember that God is faithful. He's always been faithful to us. That his mercies are new every morning. And through that, we become more faithful people. The gentleness that he's shown us, the self-control that he has shown us, and what that does is that changes us. And we become different people because what we do is we abide in what he has completed in us instead of striving to always do more works. Praise be to our Savior who did all of this in us, who completed this work, who made us who we are, that we can rely on it, that we can rest in it, and we can let the Holy Spirit change us through his work. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you that uh, your work has been completed through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you, uh, you created us to be people who abide in you, who walk with you, to have communion with you. And Lord, we thank you that at great cost, you've dressed us completely in white, and that we are without blemish, we are without sin, all through the work of Jesus. Lord, we thank you and we rejoice in the fact that your mercies are new every morning. We're grateful that we get to have a relationship with you that can't be broken by anything that we do wrong and it can't be strengthened by anything we do right, but instead, your love never fails. 
Lord, for those who are here that do not belong to you yet, uh, we ask that you would touch their heart, that the Holy Spirit would reach to them and draw them to them. Lord, that uh, those that don't know you would come to know you, that this would be a place where they could learn more about what it means to follow you and to be yours. And Lord, for those that are hurting, we ask for your healing. We are thankful for uh, great examples. For Jimmy, sportsman who holds on tightly to you during loss. For Gail, who in her final days abided in you and her love, your love for her. Knowing that she would belong to you, she rested in that hope and she rested in that eternity that you've given to all of us. Lord, let us be people who abide in you and what you say about us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.